PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. This is Becky Craig, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. I am delighted to welcome you to the March issue. In the February editorial, I welcomed the Royal Dutch Society for Physical Therapy, and that is because that society has adopted PTJ as its official journal. So I am very pleased and would like to make a formal welcome on this Craigcast to that society and thank them for adopting our journal. We have 12 really interesting articles in the March issue. The first article is a LEAP, or Linking Evidence and Practice article, that talks about vestibular rehab. The authors are Janine Brodowski and Matt Venicek. For the first time in a long time, we see that the Cochrane Review comes out with a really strong conclusion. There is a take-home message to suggest that vestibular rehabilitation does have a positive effect on dizziness activities of daily living, and balance, for example. The limitation in the Cochrane Review is that the specific dose is not yet defined. But I think this is a really strong area where research has been developing over the years to indicate the use of vestibular rehabilitation for persons with unilateral peripheral vestibular dysfunction. The next article is entitled, Many Randomized Trials of Physical Therapy Interventions Are Not Adequately Registered a survey of 200 published trials. The first author is Rafael Pinto. He and his colleagues from the George Institute for Global Health and the University of Sydney worked together on this paper. And basically, the bottom line of this paper is very discouraging. When they looked at 200 published trials, they found that only five of the 200 trials, or 2.5%, had registration that was adequate. The International Committee of Medical Journal Editors came up with a notion of registering clinical trials. And in 2009, we as a physical therapy journal adopted the principle that if your study began after January 1st, 2009, that it had to be registered in the clinical registry. Commonly, clinicaltrials.gov is the site that's used in the United States. Now, what is really interesting is that in the January 2013 editorial, we talked about the International Society of Physical Therapy Journal editors beginning to look at this policy with an emphasis on trying to get all the journals to adopt a similar policy. I'm sure this makes sense. If you haven't registered your clinical trials, you can't publish in PTJ. You may be able to publish in another journal where there's not a clinical trial policy. So basically, in order to raise the level of clinical trials, particularly randomized clinical trials, the International Society of Physical Therapy Journal Editors is also going about trying to get all physical therapy journals around the world to adopt this standard. So if you're in the process of conducting a clinical trial, I really encourage you to go to the TTJ website and look for instructions to authors. It will give you registries where you should go to register your clinical trial and sort of help walk you through that process. 
the next article is entitled Efficacy of the Addition of Modified Pilates Exercises to a Minimal Intervention in Patients with Chronic Low Back Pain. This is a randomized control trial. It is led by Miyamoto and her colleagues. This is a randomized control trial comparing what many of you, I assume, know Pilates exercises are to an education session. The Pilates group received one hour session twice a week over a six-week period. So compared to education alone, the Pilates group had decrease in pain and decrease in disability at six weeks. However, at six months, there was not a difference between the group and the primary outcome variables. I want to emphasize that the patients that were included in the study had chronic nonspecific low back pain at least for three months and were aged between 18 and 60 years of age. So when considering the generalizability of the study, recognize those two factors. The next paper entitled, The Start Back Screening Tool and Individual Psychological Measures, Evaluation of Prognostic Capabilities for Low Back Pain Clinical Outcomes in Outpatient Physical Therapy Settings, is led by Benichek. We have published several articles looking at the psychological factors and variables that are associated as risk factors for low back pain. We really don't have an effective tool. These authors took what was presented as a screening tool called START back in 2008. It was published in Arthritis and Rheumatology, and they compared it to a number of single variables. So I encourage you to look at the study. I think it's remarkably interesting, and I'm going to tell you one reason it's really interesting to me is that chronic low back pain has increased 160% over the past 14 years. So if we can identify factors early on that predict outcome, we might be able to intervene more effectively in the beginning. So I really hope that you enjoy this article as much as I did. I think it's very informative for clinical practice. The next paper is entitled, People with Stroke Who Fail an Obstacle Crossing Task Have a Higher Incidence of Falls and utilize different patterns compared with people who pass the task. This team is led by Catherine Said and her colleagues who are in Victoria, Australia. I'm going to divert for a moment and talk about Professor Aftab Patva, who is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Waterloo. Aftab died at the age of 54 after struggling eight months with an aggressive brain tumor. When I see the obstacle crossing task, I always think of Aftab Patla. He was at the neuroscience meetings, always talking about this task and trying to encourage those investigators who had access to patients to pick up this task. And I am delighted to see that Catherine said and her colleagues did so in this article. So I encourage you to look at this paper. I think it's really very interesting and has potential immediate application to clinical practice. The next paper is what characterizes people who have an unclear classification using a treatment-based classification algorithm for low back pain. This is a cross-sectional study led by Tasha Stanton and her colleagues from New South Wales, from Amsterdam, from Fremantle in Western Australia, and from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is a secondary analysis. Three other studies were done, and the data from those three studies were compiled in this particular study. What this study looked at were the patients who didn't fall into a nice, clear classification. 
And it turns out that it's not an insignificant number. As many as 50% in one of the three studies that were combined couldn't be classified. So the authors were really very interested in being able to identify the characteristics of the patient population and determining whether or not there's a particular type of intervention that they would recommend for those patients. The next article is entitled Ultrasound Imaging Evaluation of Abdominal Muscles After Breast Reconstruction with a Unilateral Pedicle Transverse Rectus Abdominis Myocutaneous Flap. The authors are led by Liao. The colleagues are from three universities and a hospital in Taiwan. As many of you know, reconstruction after mastectomy has become a very important area of research. These authors are physical therapists who were interested in looking at the use of the transverse rectus abdominis serving as part of the reconstruction of the breast and the impact that the surgery and immobilization has on the abdominal muscles. The post-operative immobilization was probably one of the reasons that there was generalized weakness of abdominal musculature. So again, this provides an excellent rationale for physical therapists to be involved with this patient population. The next paper is entitled, The First Two Years of Practice, A Longitudinal Perspective on the Learning and Professional Development of Promising Novice Physical Therapists. And the team was led by Lorna Hayward from Northeastern University. This is a follow-up on a paper that was published by Black et al. in Physical Therapy in 2010. This qualitative study, I think, serves as a really excellent template for clinical sites that want to mentor their novice clinicians. The next paper is entitled Physical Activity in Students of the Medical University of Silesia in Poland. The team is led by Dombrowska Gallus and colleagues from the Medical University of Silesia. This article basically looked at 300 students to find out what their physical activity level was. Lo and behold, physical therapist students demonstrated the highest level of activity compared to the other health professionals. So the article is suggesting that physical therapists practice what they preach. The next article is entitled Reliability and Responsiveness of the Gross Motor Function Measure 88 in Children with Cerebral Palsy. The authors are from CHA University in the Republic of Korea. The purpose of the study was to determine reliability and responsiveness of the GMFM 88 in evaluating gross motor function in children with cerebral palsy. There's a large sample of 84 children. The average age of the children is 3.7 years. They're definitely less than 10 years, so the reliability and responsiveness of this instrument with children with cerebral palsy should not be generalized beyond the age of 10 years using this study. The next article is entitled, Ankle Joint Mobilization Affects Postoperative Pain Through Peripheral and Central Adenosine A1 Receptors. The team is led by Daniel Martins and his colleagues from Santa Catarina, Brazil. I'm not going to say very much at all about this article because we're going to be doing a podcast on it, so I will say listen to the podcast. The final paper is a perspective by Lisa Kenyon from Grand State Valley University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
It's entitled The Hypothesis-Oriented Pediatric-Focused Algorithm, a Framework for Clinical Reasoning in Pediatric Physical Therapist Practice. The hypothesis-oriented algorithm is something that Jules Rothstein, Jack Echternach, and Dan Riddle have published previously in our journal. The author takes that conceptual framework and uses it in problem-solving for a pediatric condition. So I think you'll find this a very useful perspective. So in closing, the 12 articles that are in this issue reflect a broad variety of topics, include authors from around the world, and have a lot of immediate clinical relevance. So I hope you do enjoy this March issue. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include CraigCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.